Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. The viewpoints expressed by the host are her own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CBS News Radio. Welcome to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. The foundation upon which the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s enduring legacy was built was King's guiding principle of nonviolence. What I'm saying is this. I would like for all of us to believe in nonviolence, but I'm here to say tonight that if every Negro in the United States turns against nonviolence, I'm going to stand up as a lone voice and say this is the wrong way. I will never change in my basic idea that nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to the Negro in his struggle for freedom and justice. One of the most prominent victims of gun violence himself, Martin Luther King was assassinated on April the 4th, 1968. The threat of gun violence was not a theoretical construct for King. He and his family faced numerous death threats, and to this day, the scourge of gun violence plagues our country while disproportionately affecting Black Americans. African Americans experienced 10 times the gun homicides, 18 times the gun assault injuries, and nearly three times the fatal shootings by police compared to white Americans, according to the organization Every Town for Gun Safety. Here to talk with us about Reverend King and gun violence is Cornell William Brooks, the former president and CEO of the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, a civil rights attorney and an ordained minister, as well as a professor at Harvard University. Cornell William Brooks, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted, delighted, delighted to, to be with you to talk about Dr. King and his, his words and work and his life and his legacy and certainly honored to be with you, given that you represent so many of the causes and concerns of 
his life that inspired his life, that animated his life. So delighted to be with you. We're so glad to have you too, uh, Professor Brooks. So given Dr. King's adherence to the practice of nonviolent protest and his opposition to the Vietnam War, many people might be surprised to learn that Dr. King at one point of his life was a gun owner, specifically as a means to protect himself and his family. In fact, one civil rights leader said King's home was quote, an arsenal. Uh, what was Dr. King's rationale for owning a gun? Sure, sure. So if you can imagine in the late 1950s, following the Montgomery boycott, Dr. King's life was inundated. His phone lines were inundated with death threats. And so he would pick up the phone or Coretta Scott King would pick up the phone and there would be those who would literally besiege their ears with the N-word and obscenities. And he not only knew that his life was under threat, but his home had been bombed. And in the wake of the bombing of his home, he secured firearms to protect himself. And Dr. King experienced the fear that many Americans uh, experience in terms of fearing violence. And his response to the fear of violence was to secure a firearm. And this is not unlike what many Americans grapple with today. But what's important here is not merely that he owned a gun, but he decided to give up his guns in service of nonviolence. And his belief that he was safer embracing the philosophy of nonviolence than he was with only a gun. As he put it, no gun can protect me. No handgun can protect me from a bomb. Yeah, and so and that is very true. And, you know, e even in our community, as we grapple with the very real realities of some of our sisters and brothers and family and friends in this nation believing so strongly that the Second Amendment to the Constitution is an absolute. You know, they 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 feel that deeply uh, in their bones, and the fact that you can own a gun and be very much against gun violence. You know, as you're describing, Professor Brooks, Dr. King's rationale to get it was for protection. It wasn't to be out there rampantly, you know, waving a gun or believing that the Second Amendment was absolute, like so many others in this country that I frankly disagree with. But there is that duality, especially in the black community of, of many in, in, in our community, believing that they should have a gun, which is their constitutional right, who are not, you know, they are against gun violence themselves. I mean, I think I'm thinking about Ida B. Wells right now. I'm not sure if you're picking up that same vibe, but you know, in the face of white supremacy, I mean, like brute white supremacy in your face on a regular basis for her and her contemporaries. I mean, two of her friends got killed because they were successful and the whites in that community resented that so much that they resorted to violence, which is the story of many of our, uh, not just our ancestors, but some of our elders that are walking the face of this earth right now. But Ida B. Wells herself said, you know, basically a best friend, you know, paraphrasing her, but a Smith and Wesson. It should is something that every black person should have. That's right. You know, I, Ida B. Wells, is, is, as you lifted up, historically uh, speaking, was the subject of death threats, the subject of lynching threats. She witnessed, if not in person, but certainly uh, at an emotionally intimate uh, distance, uh, her friends being killed, the city of Memphis being depopulated as a consequence of 
racialized violence, uh, lynchings. And as a consequence, she believed in guns as a, a means of community preservation and self-protection. So there is within the Black community, and certainly even within the philosophy of Dr. King, uh, a moral nuance, a, a, a moral complexity, such that there's a recognition that there are people who own guns to protect themselves, uh, even as they oppose gun violence and as they embrace nonviolence. And so there are those who have studied the civil rights movement who note the fact that there were many protesters and demonstrators, adherents of nonviolence, who were unarmed during the protests, who went home to homes in which there were guns to protect themselves. So that's part of the history. But that being said, it's important, I think, to appreciate the fact that Dr. King gave up his guns in order to serve as a moral exemplar, um, in order to lift up the eloquence of his own example um, in terms of serving as a role model for the movement. So part of the reason he gave up his guns was because he literally believed that for him to own a gun and to lead a nonviolent movement would undercut the viability of the movement. So I think it's really, really important here to appreciate his moral discipline, uh, his philosophical discipline, uh, and also his sacrifice, because ultimately he gave up his guns and believed he was safer without them than with them, but yet he died at the hands of gun violence. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, this is, it's really hard to, for one to wrap their minds around, you know, exactly what you're saying right now, because it's so deep and, and so profound and so troubling at the same time, because you have a man giving it all. I mean, he's putting it all on the line, him and uh, Mrs. Coretta Scott King, the entire family and making these extraordinary sacrifices that very few people would be willing to make. And at the same time, he was assassinated. He was killed uh, by gun. And, you know, at that time, it was very difficult for a black person to legally own a gun in some uh, jurisdictions. I, I don't think many of us understand or appreciate that. In fact, Dr. King was denied a, a concealed carry permit in Alabama. That's right. That's right. And and as, as, as you recall, um, you know, all too well, the police at that time had the discretion to uh, designate a person unsuitable, unfit to have a concealed weapon permit. Um, Alabama denying him a concealed weapon permit because of his race and nevertheless uh, subjecting him as a citizen of Alabama to the threats and the real possibility, probability of being a victim of racialized violence. We'll have more of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio with Cornell William Brooks right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. We will continue now with Cornell William Brooks, the former president and CEO of the NAACP, and our conversation about Martin Luther King and gun violence. You know, he died at the hands of gun violence. 
started his civil rights career endeavoring to protect himself and protect his family. And yet we have people today who try to twist and contort his legacy by you know, making him out to be a, a de facto supporter of the NRA and their present uh, uh, understanding of gun violence. And, and so there, there's just so much here to unpack, right? You know, like, like think about the fact that it was Dr. King's death that literally gave birth to the modern NRA, meaning he was killed. Congress passes the Gun Control Act of 1968 in response to Dr. King's death, in response to Robert Kennedy's death, in response to John F. Kennedy's death. And because Congress responded to this gun violence with this major piece of of gun reform legislation, the NRA literally ramps up its opposition to any form of gun control and literally comes into being as this gun phallic, uh, this gun worshiping, gun fetishizing organization that we know today. So many ironies here. Very much. I mean, multifaceted ironies going on, swirling around. And I think Dr. King would certainly be uh, disgusted by what the NRA is to, today. And, you know, so many of the deaths of children and just innocent people, whether they're children or not, but especially our children, and the fact that we lack the moral courage as a nation. And when I say we, I'm really referring to elected officials to really bump up against the NRA in a, in a stronger way because so many of our elected officials, unfortunately, are co-opted by their owner donors. But this is indeed fascinating. And you had already mentioned the fact that Dr. King decided that it would be better to not have a gun, you know, even in the onslaught of the death threats, you know, he, he renounced gun ownership. And and as you laid out, he, he rid himself in his home of the deadly weapons. And Dr. King said these words, which you already alluded to, and I'm quoting him here, I was much more afraid in Montgomery when I had a gun in my house, when I decided that I couldn't keep a gun. I came face to face with the question of death and I dealt with it. From that point on, I no longer needed a gun, nor have I been afraid, end quote. And you laid out, Professor Brooks, what caused this change for Dr. King, but what such selfless words uh, to say. And it really took a deep-seated awakening for Dr. King to utter those words and then to mirror those words by his very actions and deeds. That's right. And I, I would say that the words that you lifted up in terms of Dr. King's opposition to gun ownership and his opposition to to the fear of death, those words were echoed on the night before he died in Memphis when he gave his famous uh, mountaintop speech in which he said, uh, I'm not fearing any man. and that he was unafraid. And so the, the point being here is there's a moral consistency to Dr. King that I think is really, really important and really inspiring. And here's what I mean. Dr. King did not walk into America's moral conscience um, fully formed, fully created. He evolved, he changed, he learned. When he began the Montgomery boycott 
or began his leadership of the Montgomery boycott, he was not a particularly sophisticated or well-studied student of nonviolence. He had written about Thoreau in college. He knew of Gandhi, but he was not a long-studied or well-studied student of Gandhi at the beginning of the Montgomery boycott. It's only when Bayard Rustin uh, entered his life, if you will, as a kind of nonviolent tutor that he steeped himself in the philosophy of nonviolence. And so what this says to us on this uh, anniversary of his birth is that we, as moral beings, can learn, can grow, we can study, we can evolve, we can change for the better. And so for those who are grappling with uh, how do we come to grips with the gun violence which has seized our country, I would simply encourage people to not merely uh, celebrate Dr. King, but emulate Dr. King. Study his words. Ponder the meaning of his life. Read the people he read. And in so doing, you literally uh, imbibe and ingest and, and bring into your own being uh, the substance of his philosophy and the power of his life. And what you are challenging all of us to do, uh, Dr. Brooks, is uh, it requires some sacrifice. It requires some self-awareness. It requires not just looking at Dr. King as this kind of stale symbol of what was. That's right. He really is very much what is and what can be. I mean, the philosophies that he lived his life, by which he lived his life, is not just about the past. It is very much about the present and it is about the future. So you are challenging us in a way that certainly I believe, and I'm sure so many others that are joining us in this conversation believe as well. There were you know, more gun deaths in America in 2020 than in any other year, other year almost 50,000 people. And the gun culture in America is unlike that of any other country in the world. And I have seen essays contrasting the Second Amendment with the Second Commandment. I mean, if you can really, I mean, that's how deep this goes. And the Second Commandment says, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no false gods before me. But in America, the idolatry of gun guns seems to fly in the face of the second commandment. What do you make of that? Because so many, especially, you know, of the people who are holding up the second amendment as absolute, probably many of them, and there's, you know, we got anecdotal, but there's empirical data out there too, probably liken themselves to Christians and probably uphold the 10 commandments. You know, they would have gun in one hand, the Bible in the other, that contradiction between uh, how they uh, worship the second amendment but then would not uh, place the, the second commandment in that same, they, they can't, you can't have two. You can't, I believe both of those things at the same time. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, let me, let me start with why I think the way I think. My perspective is informed by the fact that I was raised in the bosom of the black church, Bethel AME Church in Georgetown, South Carolina. I studied Dr. King's philosophy at Boston University School of Theology, his alma mater. I'm a fourth generation minister in the AME Church, 
and I'm a civil rights lawyer having studied at Yale Law School. So I, I take up the question both theologically and legally. And so theologically speaking, the in the Christian tradition, uh, Christian theology traditionally holds that nothing can be venerated, worshipped, lifted up, committed to uh, more than God. God comes first. And that was certainly true in Dr. King's philosophy. Uh, God first, God's children thereafter. Legally speaking, this notion that the Second Amendment is more important than any of the other amendments, uh, and that the Second Amendment invests the individual with an unfettered right to own any gun under any circumstances with any uh, kind of ammunition, irrespective of its lethality, uh, is ahistorical. It is incorrect. It is a contradiction of the understanding of the majority of scholars when it comes to the Second Amendment. So in other words, the Second Amendment doesn't invest, many people believe, the Second Amendment doesn't invest the individual with the right, but it recognizes the right of state militias. Okay? So the point being here is that gun ownership is not a theological right, and it is not an unfettered legal right, and it does not subvert the whole of the Constitution. And so when we look at the life of Dr. King, Certainly there's nothing in his life that would suggest theologizing the legal right to own a gun. And there's nothing in American constitutional history or scholarship that would lend support for this common understanding of gun ownership, namely that you can have as many guns as you want uh, with whatever firepower you deem necessary, that you can carry them in any place in society and use them at will. There's quite simply uh, nothing to support that. We'll have more of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio with Cornell William Brooks right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. We will continue now with Cornell William Brooks, the former president and CEO of the NAACP, and our conversation about Martin Luther King and gun violence. You know, after Dr. King's death, there were lots of riots and looting in some of the major metropolitan areas in our country. And gun advocates definitely use this as an argument for white people needing to arm themselves. You know, this fear of those people uh, for protection from and those people being black people. What is the relationship between gun ownership and systemic racism in America? Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking um, what is a hard question, but is a question that can't be done. So let's look at the history. So. The most popular, most lethal, most infamous instrument of mass murder in this country, the AR-15, um, in military terms, the M-16, it came into being right about the same time as this modern civil rights movement came into being in the 1950s. 
when Dr. King was assassinated at the hands of white supremacy and gun violence, uh, thereafter, the Gun Control Act of 1968 was uh, came into being. And as a consequence of that, the NRA, which had traditionally focused on shooting competitions and gun safety, literally ramps up and becomes this gun fetishizing uh, entity in the body politic, focused on literally this unrestricted, unconstrained um, exercise of the Second Amendment. And so literally the struggle for civil rights, the struggle for racial justice was weaponized, was weaponized to fuel gun ownership. So in other words, there's a relationship between white supremacy and gun ownership. So in other words, when we have police departments who have in their shooting ranges, uh, their practice targets being black faces. And we can even go back to the days of slavery. Why? Because the uh, slaves, the enslaved people were forbidden, prohibited from owning, having, or using guns. Uh, in the wake of every slave insurrection, there was a tightening, if you will, uh, on tightening, if you will, on the of the reins on the black community, including their access to weapons. Subsequent to the abolishment of slavery, uh, the restrictions imposed on the black community were always about literally limiting access to guns. With the ascent of the Black Panther Party, the Black Power movement in this country, uh, those liberatory movements, those expressions of, of community agency were literally weaponized. And so in order for us to have a rational, thoughtful, moral discussion of gun violence, we have to appreciate its ugly, long racial history in terms of white supremacy. You know, I mentioned earlier that Black people in America are 10 times more likely to be killed by someone with a gun compared to their white counterparts. What are the ways we can reduce gun violence for all Americans and specifically those people who are the most adversely affected by it? Well, one of the things that we can do is to quite simply appreciate the fact that the America of 2023 has not always existed. So one of the things that we can do is literally decrease the sheer number of guns. We just have far too many, far too many. Dr. King was not the only member of the King family to be slain by gun violence. His mother, years after his death in 1974, while playing the organ at Ebenezer Baptist Church where the Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock uh, now serves as pastor. While she was playing the organ, a young man entered that sacred space, took out two handguns, killed her and a deacon of that church. See, the, the ubiquity of gun violence is real, right? So as we celebrate Dr. King's you know, life and legacy, his words and work in terms of nonviolence, we have to appreciate the cost of violence to the King family, not merely in terms of Dr. King being assassinated, but his mother being assassinated. And Dr. Brooks, thank you so much. You have definitely, we are in class today with you, with Dr. Cornell Brooks. We are the former president and CEO of the NAACP, Harvard professor 
and an MLK scholar. We are blessed to be able to have you uh, walk us down memory lane and also tell us the things that we must do individually and collectively to do away with the scourge of gun violence in the United States of America and also the moral work that must be wedded to legal outcomes in these United States of America. We really do appreciate you. No, thank you all. You are listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, so long as I do not firmly and irrevocably possess the right to vote, I do not possess myself. I cannot make up my mind. It is made up for me. I cannot live as a democratic citizen observing the laws I have helped to enact. I can only submit to the edict of others, end quote. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, along with the 1964 Civil Rights Act and Fair Housing Act, were the three crown jewels of Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. But in 2013, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in Shelby County v. Holder, removed a key provision of the Voting Rights Act that many view as an assault on Dr. King's legacy and the constitutional rights of all citizens to participate in our democracy. Joining us now to discuss the state of voting rights in the United States is Nicole Killian, Congressional Correspondent for CBS News. Nicole, thanks for being here. Good to be with you. And you as well. Let's go back to 1965. Why was the Voting Rights Bill enacted and what did Section 5, the section that the Supreme Court struck down, provide to help with enforcing voting rights? Well, I think you have to look at the historic nature of how the Voting Rights Act came together and just the compromise that was forged on all sides to get it over the finish line at a time of great turmoil in our country at the height of the civil rights movement on the heels of the Civil Rights Act being passed. Um, You know, I had a chance uh, about a year or so ago to interview the daughter of Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was there uh, when the Voting Rights Act was signed back in 1965. And one thing she talks about is just the bipartisan nature of it and really what it took to win agreement from all sides to enact such historic legislation. And so you counter that with what is happening today, where in the last Congress, we saw Democrats make a number of attempts to try to get voting rights legislation passed to uh, strengthen the law after it had been gutted in part by that Shelby versus Holder decision in 2013 and continue to run into opposition uh, by Republicans time and again. And so now we find ourselves, of course, uh, with a Republican House and a Democratic Senate, uh, both of which are evenly divided, which makes the prospects, I think, of trying to pass future legislation a challenge, but it certainly remains a priority, uh, particularly among Democrats, to try to keep the issue front and center, especially uh, as we saw a lot of new voting laws passed in the wake of the 20. 2020 election and uh, play out during the 2022 midterms. Yeah, no doubt about that. And we have certainly had 
times in our country's history, as you were pointing out, what happened in the 60s of having both Republicans and Democrats uh, with some arm twisting, no doubt, some Dylan behind closed doors. I mean, President LBJ was very good at that, at trying to uh, advance voting rights and also civil rights uh, in this country. And the Voting Rights Act needed to be extended on several occasions and both Republicans and Democratic presidents providing those extensions, including President Ronald Reagan. And he said the following, uh, quote, citizens must have complete confidence in the sanctity of their right to vote. And that's what this legislation is all about. It provides confidence that constitutional guarantees are being upheld and that no vote counts more than another. To so many of our people, our Americans of Mexican descent, our Black Americans, this measure is as important symbolically as it is practically. It says to every individual, your vote is equal, your vote is meaningful, your vote is your constitutional right, end quote. But didn't Reagan also work to weaken the provisions of the Voting Rights Act that made it enforceable. So now, Nicole, we're seeing contradictions, uh, even in what President Reagan said and what we see happening right now today in the 21st century. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, kind of in the period uh, that we are in right now as a country, uh, especially in a period where we have witnessed an increase, for instance, in election denialism, uh, that it has raised the stakes even more. And so that's why I think particularly among Democrats, there is still this desire to uh, continue to push legislation like this. And and I think we will see uh, more of a greater emphasis towards the issue of voting rights, uh, particularly on the state level, as we have seen over the past couple of years. Uh, but more specifically, I think given the uh, difficult chances that legislation like this may face in Congress right now, I think you're going to see greater strides in state legislatures, both Republican and Democrat. But certainly uh, where you have a lot of Democrats in power, whether that's states like Michigan or Minnesota, Pennsylvania, we already know uh, that there has been talk of trying to push a more aggressive measures uh, to try to restore voting rights uh, for many citizens. And we need that. I mean, never certainly did I think I would live to see today that we are regressing, but that is exactly what is happening and it has been happening for quite some time. And the really profound backlash of the election of the first African-American president, that being uh, President Barack Obama, you see that backlash happening all over the country. Uh, we saw the loss of over a thousand seats on all levels of government happen in that 2010 midterm election cycle. And certainly, as you point out, where Republicans control legislatures, I mean, I served in the Ohio legislature, in the Ohio Senate, and certainly uh, saw up close and personal the onslaught of eroding voting access in my very own state. And the state of Ohio right now is one of the worst uh, in terms of turning back the hands of, of time. And just because people are able to surmount hurdles does not mean that the hurdle is not there. And, and that, to me, is a very important point to make as voting rights activists like myself and so many others continue to a push to give that unfettered access to the ballot box for all people, no matter how they want to vote. And it continues to boggle my mind why we as a 
quote unquote civilized society are still having this kind of debate in the 21st century about that access. In 2014, uh, you you may recall, I, I ran for secretary of state in the great state of Ohio. And part of my campaign uh, foundation was I, I'm, I'm here to fight for your right to vote, even if you want to vote against me. And we need more people, especially secretaries of states, to uphold that, that this is really not about whether somebody leans right or left or whether they're on the so-called red or blue team. It is about each and every person in this country being able to exercise one of the greatest equalizers that we have in this society today. And that is one man, one woman or one person, one vote. And and I think you make a good point with respect to your own race for Secretary of State. I mean, I think that was one of the more interesting things to watch, particularly in this midterm cycle, because most of the time people are paying attention to the congressional races. But these Secretary of State races were just as consequential, especially when you had many candidates in states like, you know, Arizona, Nevada and others, where you had these candidates who were running on election denialism and wanting to control the process for voting at the state level. Um, You know, many of those candidates ultimately did not succeed, but it did raise, I think, uh, a lot of concern and attention to how the process is handled. So much so now we are also hearing about the need for greater reforms, for instance, for poll workers. We'll be right back with Nicole Killian, congressional correspondent for CBS News. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special from CBS News. I'm Nina Turner. We return to our conversation about voting rights in the United States with Nicole Killian, congressional correspondent for CBS News. The remedies that Congress proposed, I mean, you mentioned the John Lewis Voting Rights Act as as one of those. Are there other things that this Congress, in your mind, uh, could be putting forward whether or not they win bipartisan support to try to push back on some extremists in state legislatures to secure voting rights access. Well, I think you also saw the legislation, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, and that was kind of more uh, practical in effect in terms of, for instance, trying to expand mail-in voting, early voting, automatic voter registration. Again, that too did not uh, succeed in in the last Congress. But uh, it does kind of lay the groundwork. Um, as you know, of course, politics is cyclical. So, <laughs> you know, we, we don't know what will happen come 2024 uh, in terms of whether the power dynamics change. But uh, again, I think just because it may be a heavy lift in this Congress doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the work won't be pursued and the work won't get done. And I think if anything, again, it's probably a scenario where you will see uh, more of this type of action and work taking place on the state level, which is pretty much how it has been playing out and how it often plays out uh, when there is gridlock or inaction in Congress. And again, you know, whether it's states like Min- Michigan or, or Minnesota or, or again, Pennsylvania, which now have uh, Democratic governors or Democratic governors uh, continuing in positions of power, again, they have made clear uh, that they will try to move forward on other priorities, whether that is creating automatic voter registration systems uh, similar to, you know, what's being proposed 
post in Congress or, for instance, pre-registering teenagers to vote uh, before they turn 18, returning the franchise to to felons uh, who are released from prison uh, and criminalizing election misinformation. So I do think uh, depending on how things play out at the state level, uh, we may see more reforms uh, down the line. But again, to the contrary, uh, you have a number of Republican legislatures as well, which may be trying to uh, tighten the reins, you know, kind of getting back to my experience in Georgia, one thing that I thought was interesting uh, and, and notable is that the Secretary of State there did acknowledge, even though he feels that the new law that they put in place, uh, you know, prior to this uh, election cycle, uh, that it did not lead to greater voter suppression, but he did acknowledge it may need to be reformed. You know, there were a lot of people, again, who had their eligibility challenged to the point where a lot of these claims were, were frivolous. And even the Secretary of State acknowledged, hey, you know, we, we may need to look at that. So, you know, I think there are efforts, again, across uh, many states to try to uh, reevaluate even some of these stricter laws and, and policies uh, as needed as the process plays out. So I think that's also something to watch uh, going forward. I agree with you. And certainly acknowledgement is a start, (laughs) albeit light, but it is a start. Well, thank you so very much, Nicole, for being with us. We really appreciate you giving us the lay of the land as it is happening right now. Nicole Killian, Congressional Correspondent for CBS News. It was a pleasure to have you here with us today. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.